Profess Error, the podcast where we celebrate life in academia through the failures we've experienced, not to celebrate the ways in which we fell down, but the ways in which we've gotten back up. In this episode, Brian and I talk about the process of developing a promotion and tenure package. We talk about what we did, things we might have changed, things we've heard others do. Hopefully out of this, you get some strategies and approaches that maybe you could take when it comes time for you to develop your promotion and tenure package. Welcome to Profess Error. We've got an episode today with uh, only Brian Franz and I. So, Brian, how are you doing today? I'm good. This is Profess Error Classic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, this is vintage almost. This is like yeah. the early days. Just one year ago, we started this thinking maybe there'll be two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> 15D. Wow. So, today we're talking about something um, that is timely, I think, not only because of the time of year we're recording this in August, um, but also for um, an activity that is very uh, timely for where you are in your career, Brian, and where I very recently have been. We're talking about the promotion and tenure package and the actual content that we submit and that process and things that work well and opportunities that, you know, in hindsight, maybe we could have improved as it relates to uh, that package. So maybe just as, as a way of reminder for the listeners, when we talk about the tenure process, this is the process where we will submit our achievements over the last X number of years, usually five or six, but this can vary a little bit by institution. And you're showing to your university what you've produced and what you've um, you know, created and developed and who you've mentored and how well you've taught and what kind of service things you've done. You're submitting all this content and ultimately it will be reviewed by a faculty committee or a promotion and tenure committee and or the dean and or the provost and everyone at university, they will essentially Uh, coalesce their observations into kind of a yes we think this individual deserves to get tenure or potentially no we don't sometimes there's even a probationary kind of period they'll grant but maybe we'll stay away from that from the just all the uh, nuances that can exist Mm -hmm. there our focus though is in what is the thing we're actually submitting to them i think conceptually what i just said kind of made sense when i was starting Um, I don't think until I got much closer to the time of submitting, I had a good sense of what was involved in terms of the actual content that gets submitted. So maybe this would be a good spot, Brian, to turn it to you since you're right at that spot. What goes into a P&T promotion and tenure package or packet um, that you submit? Like what what is expected? Sure. So I think the format may vary um, by university, Uh, but the core elements are, are always there, right? There's some form of, of narrative or narratives which describe uh, your impact and your contributions with respect to research, uh, teaching, and service. And then beyond each of those narratives, there is um, either your CV or um, sections of your CV sort of partitioned out that describe and provide evidence, supporting evidence, for anything that you're describing in those narratives. So it could be a list of publications, it could be a a table summarizing uh, grants that you've recently been awarded or or been awarded over your tenure uh, probationary period. Um, It could be uh, service activities that you've engaged with, um, committees that you've served on, um, students that you've graduated. Um, And it's basically, as you said, a record of, of everything uh, that you've done. So hopefully you've kept good notes uh, over the past five or six years um, to be able to put that together. Yeah. Because searching for some conference that you attended in the second year is painful. I was a little bit lucky in that a couple of colleagues had kind of said to me, look, every month, open up your CV and just give it a yeah. quick glance and check. And I'm, I'm, I mostly did that. There probably was one or two where I missed a month. But Generally, that was on my my radar because you're right. I, if you if you don't update it for a year, you're not you're going to miss something. Like there's just no way. Even small stuff like small service things where you are a faculty judge for like right. a, a graduate student poster session or something. Like it's so easy just to forget those yeah. two years down the line. But there's something that should be on there because it was something that you took time to do yeah. out of your schedule and it was service to the university or to the community as a whole. And so this is an interesting sort of, I felt anyway, um, juxtaposition in terms of we've got that CV and we have all those details you've just talked about, faculty advisor or faculty judge or whatever the different things are you've done. And that CV grows a whole lot. Right? You start as a 
basically a grad student or a recently graduated grad student or maybe a postdoc, and you've got a three or four page CV, by the time you're submitting for tenure, you've done enough other things that that has grown to 10 plus, 20 plus pages. One of the things I found to be especially challenging is that you've got this 20 plus page document of all of these great things you've done. And then you have the narrative, or narratives, as you say, and that is super short, right? And this may be very little by institution. Ours was a four-page document. Yours was separated into different sections, but was still a very small amount of space. For me, I feel like that was one of the hardest documents I ever had to write while here, uh, while at, at my institution, because I had spent so much time building up this CV of accolades. And then you say, now coalesce that to a page or a couple pages or whatever it may be, one page for research, um, whatever the situation. I, I just didn't feel like that was a super daunting task going through it. Uh, yes. I mean, it, especially when, uh, you know, when you just get started on the tenure track and it's, it, you don't exactly have a lot of control over where your research trajectory yeah. is. Yes, you may have an idea, you might have a theme that you want to investigate, but you know, you're you're casting a wide net sure. usually to find out where um, you know, there are opportunities for you to leverage funding, where what kind of journals are going to publish the kind of work that you're doing, and you don't necessarily have control over what actually comes through, like where you get approvals, yeses, acceptances, whatever. And so you sometimes, uh, you know, get a hodgepodge of things. Like I've got some kind of random papers in there um, that were great collaborations, but now I have to weave them into a coherent story about how they're somehow also related to, you know, my core research area, which which would be things like project delivery. Yeah. Um, and that's why that, in my opinion, that that narrative was very difficult. I had three very some very unlikely things in front of me and had to try to weave them together to something that someone could look at and say, yeah, I see a trajectory there. Yeah. Well, because that that document is going to be instrumental in the judgments produced from others who read it. And some of the people that are going to read it, you know, are not at your institution. Some are, are at your institution, but they're not in your department. So they don't really know construction or civil engineering. They might be computer science or biology or whatever other fields. And so it's all, I almost felt as though I had to go through and coalesce this 20-page CV down to a conclusion that leads to this is the, the man or woman that does kind of a three-word phrase. Of what is, what's the third? Four, whatever the word. A very finite amount of they do this kind of specific research. And I feel like if you're casting a wide net when you're starting, which most people do and I think is wise, that is sometimes hard to do because you'll get maybe not diametrically opposed um, research aims, but not necessarily logical. I got this and then right. I got this and that set up my big project number three or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's tough. Yeah. I mean, we, we talked about this example before, but you know, you're casting a wide net. It's like you're fishing in the ocean and you get a fish, a boot and a rock when you pull up the net and it's like, okay, these are all things found in the ocean, right. but now I have to relate them to each other and make it look like I intended to fish three up right. those three different things up, right? I mean that that's where the the narrative building uh, comes into play. And I mean I know for us, you know, you mentioned four page limit on on the entire set of you know, research teaching service narratives. Uh, we had seven hundred and fifty word limits on on each of those sections, um, and it's it's as you say challenging with the audience that you're trying to target because. Normally, I'm writing an academic paper. It's for other academics. I know the level that I need to write at. I can skip over some things because I know that my audience will have that knowledge and I don't need to explain every single thing. With the tenure packet, I mean, I know that it goes to my department, right? These are construction folks. I know that they'll understand what I'm talking about. But then it goes up to the college. And we have a lot of different departments in our college, interior design, uh, landscape, architecture, urban and regional planning. They may or may not be as familiar with some of the construction terminology or some of the things that I think are big contributions. They may not see that. They may not understand the gravity or the importance of some of the things that are being done. Um, and then it gets to the university level, and you might have someone from chemistry uh, reviewing your, your your narratives who have you know no construction background. And it's I think that's where it's very, very difficult to both write concisely in maybe 750 word limit, 
but also write in a way that is applicable to so many different levels of expertise and audience. If that, agreed, if that, by the way, is not challenging enough, one of the tidbits of advice that I got that I, th- I think is still a wise one that I'm, I'm glad I tried to take, was they said, when you write this, don't write it purely in a retrospective manner, right? Mm-hmm. If you write it only in the language of this is what I've done over the last five or six years, is that enough? Can I have tenure? And that's the tone of it. And there's no sense of where are you going with this kind of this is almost like the fish, the boot and the rock example. If you can't build the story for how those three finds or whatever set up the big thing of I'm going to get a whale next or whatever the thing, you know, whatever it is you're talking, whatever the big version is. If you don't in some way lead to that, that can also backfire. So it just or or at least at least not it it fails to deliver kind of a big um, impression that would give someone the, the conclusion of this individual deserves a position for the rest of their career here. And so I feel like this is all just more challenge in that brief amount of space of then how do you communicate that? Um, I felt it was very different from journal articles because as you say, I know what a reviewer might know. I felt it was way different than proposals because at least different institutions, you kind of learn, okay, what are the the levers that they need to, to see you pull to, to pull, pull the right uh, strings or say the right things? Here, it kind of felt like it's such a broad audience and we've never done it before. You know, it's, it's a bit of a daunting task. So maybe we can chat about some of the different sections, research, teaching, service, and kind of strategies or, or failures, you know, errors that we made that we think we could have done better in those sections. Um, sure. so I'll say on mine, I'll, I'll op- open. Because ours was open-ended and it wasn't... Um, we had to touch on teaching research and service, but it wasn't necessarily structured. Um, we had the leeway to kind of decide how we organized it. I actually started out my um, narrative by saying none of them explicitly. I kind of talked more overarching accomplishments of me, um, which I will say right now, I, I guess worked. I think it was a good idea, but I got uh, diverging opinions from others on whether it's worth taking some of that precious real estate that you have and saying, I want to give you an overview of me in half a page. Um, so what I would put in there were things like, in total, I secured X number of dollars. I mentored this many PhD students through graduation. I got this many journal papers. I presented at this many conferences. I have been elected to this leadership position in a service activity, whatever. Um, and I did that in large part because I wanted to help others who were outside of my domain or potentially letter writers who we'll talk about towards the end who are going to evaluate the package. I wanted to make it easy for them to see my strengths, but I also wasted or otherwise used about half a page on that. Did you do something like that? Did you get any thoughts on the overview section? Um, So as I said, ours is a little bit different. Um, Our overview section um, is actually a different part of the tenure package called um, job responsibilities. And we're allowed during that section, I mean, normally you'd see the title, and this is, I've been advised by, by several people that, that, uh, that this is sort of how you're supposed to use this section. It's called job responsibilities. Normally, I would look at that and I would say, okay, I do research, teach. teaching, yeah, service, right. and blah, 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 right? You do this normal, like, almost like it was a job description sure. for an assistant professor. Like, that's what I would normally think to write there. And the feedback that I was given was, no, this is almost the first thing that someone's going to read as they're reading through your package. So use this as the executive summary. So not only describe the responsibilities that you have, but hit on those bullet points that, that you just mentioned of, here's the total funding I got, here's the number of students that I graduated, here's the publication total, and hit on all of those in addition to describing what you did with respect to research. So you sort of hit those highlights there. So I didn't have to necessarily use part of my sort of research narrative word budget okay. um, to to do that narrative. I was able to do that in a different section, and that that's just due to the formatting of, of the tenure packet at, at the university here. But Did, I, that's a good idea. Like, I totally support that idea. And that's what people told me to do just to use that other section for it. Yeah. I, I did too. I think if I had to do it again, I would still do that. But I, I just, I bring it up because I, I did get a couple people I spoke with. I probably talked to five or six people who had already been tenured just to get their thoughts. 
And at least a couple of them said, don't take part of your precious space to tell them something that's already in your CV, which all of those items should be there. But I just thought, is a letter writer or is someone else really going to take the time to go through that level? And so, um, yeah, I think that was a smart move. Or it worked, at least. Yeah, I mean, because then I was able to use, and, and I'm sure you probably did this too, is use the actual narrative space, like in my research narrative, and I'm sure you used the section after that summary to provide context. Exactly. Because that's what the folks that aren't in construction or don't know you are going to struggle with, yeah. right? Because every field is different. So if, if you're looking at, um, you know, chemistry, there's a certain number of papers associated with you know, what someone going up for tenure would have, right? That's very different from ours and very different from computer science and very, so you have to provide some context there and statements that um, tell the reviewer how what you've done sort of relates or compares to, you know, the expectation in your field. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think that's tough. This, I, this is I where I felt like the research more than any of the others. Teaching and service were more linear for me. Research was the cast a wide net, catch a, a fish, a boot, and a rock, and figure out a narrative. Um, I don't know if that was a smart decision. Maybe we'll discuss that at some other time. <laughs> but it <laughs> definitely felt like, how do I piece this into a story? Um, what I ended up doing was I kind of said, okay, for the research I do that is industry focused. So this is in a more general term, we might call this applied research or use inspired. Here's what I've done, blah, 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 blah. For the research that was sort of uh, federally sponsored. So this is more mm -hmm. basic research or fundamental research. Some people call it kind of NSF style research. Here's what I've done, blah, 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 blah. I don't actually know if that was the most logical way to tell the story, but for what I had done, I found it was at least an approach to kind of make sense of it. What did you end up doing with yours, and how did you kind of make a narrative out of the, the wide net of who knows what you're going to get in research? Yeah, so, uh, so I started it with um, describing, I broke my research down into two themes. So I said, you know, here are the main two Here's my main research goal. So I said, like, the goal of my, my research is X, Y, Z. And then I said, in order to achieve this goal, I investigate, you know, two specific themes. I had theme one, theme two. Um, and then, you know, I talked a little bit about how I generally approach those themes, just methodologically. Um, and then I had my bigger sections were, you know, for sort of like you had where it said, you know, for your industry research, I said, you know, for my research that dealt with this theme, here's what I did. And it was, or here's how I made contributions, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't, I need to correct myself because it wasn't just here's what we did, right? I originally did that and it was 1800 words and that was bad. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I had a similar problem. I started over way half. too long. Like, that was not happening. So <laughs> I had to say, okay, uh, what I did is maybe not as important as what the outcome of, of yeah. that work was and what the contribution was and how maybe other researchers are now using that um, to, to further our understanding of project delivery. And so there I just focused it by theme. And so I had blocks of things about the theme and, and that way I could, even if the, the project was tangentially related, it could still be thematic, right? Yeah. Like it could still fit under this larger umbrella and it wasn't as much of a leap for me to try to explain this other small study that I did that wasn't core project delivery research, but it dealt with project performance. And so it falls under there. Right? Yeah. I think I like what you've discussed more than what I, that those feel more aligned. My, mine was less narrative. I mean, it was just, I needed buckets to put my work in. So I just made it sure. industry and academic. Um, so I, I think looking back on it, that's a thing that is a challenge, but might have been better to do what you had done. One thing I did, though, that I, I think was was probably wise, I hit the same issue you hit in terms of length. I said, all right, I got four pages in my case. I'm going to put in just the bare essentials, and I drafted, and it was eight pages long. You know, it just, just this is what we all do. So I cut way, way, way back on everything. And for the impact, one of your comments was about how this made an impact. What I would do is refer to specific journal or conference papers in the CV, and it was kind of my shorthand of saying, look, when I say impact, this is what I mean. And similarly, when I talked about mentoring students, 
Um, maybe this depends on the mentoring strategy, so I don't know if this applies to everyone. In my case, I tried to make my aims as, a, as an advisor to secure funding, get grad students, and then get the grad student, especially PhD students, to kind of lead sub-projects that I had gotten. And so that's where I would sort of name drop and say, okay, so PhD student so-and-so helped to lead this paper, 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 citation kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and I feel like that's something that if, if others are in this spot and they're listening and they're thinking, how do I coalesce 20 pages of CV to three pages or four pages of content? That was at least a pretty easy way of, of condensing a whole lot to show. When I say impact, go see the CV. This is what I'm talking about. Did yeah, so I, yeah um, so I like that idea. Um, and it, it got me thinking because as I was you know, writing this narrative, as you said, papers, projects that you've gotten, graduate students that you've, you've gotten through the program, those are all evidence that and, and kind of markers mm-hmm. along the way that you've they prove you did something right and so you know that's one of those things where i don't know in hindsight i wish i would have maybe identified um a couple more of those proactively to say if this is the story i'm going to tell i wish i had a paper that kind of made this bridge a little bit more apparent but that's maybe a discussion um for another day i will say um how i sort of worked around some of the word limit and just for for everyone for everyone listening, I have not submitted this yet, so I'm still, um, you know, making some final edits on it. But some advice that I was given, um, and this is, I don't know if this is still going to be allowed by the time I submit it, but I'll say it anyway, um, at the risk of someone <laughs> listening and then changing the rules on me. Um, we apparently can use footnotes in our in our document, and so what was recommended to me was to I don't want to say abuse footnotes, um, but to use footnotes uh, perhaps more aggressively than I, than I had, and using those footnotes to provide some additional context on the research that kind of gets around the word count a little bit. So as I'm making a statement of uh, you know some contribution and I'm describing the actual contribution itself, I can put a footnote at the end of that that then says you know, these contributions can be seen in journal articles and put the numbers there mm-hmm. that may relate to, you know, in my CV or, you know, students that, that were attached to that project. And I can sort of attach that extra information via a footnote mm-hmm. so that if someone is interested in what those specific contributions were beyond, you know, my concise statement of what I think they are, um, they can see the publications that are associated with it or the students or the grant itself. So, I mean, I think that's that's good advice. Whether or not the footnote up rule applies elsewhere, others will have to check with their institution. But it's likely, I mean, to me, the takeaway in that lesson is whatever your institution's rules are, mm-hmm. figure them out and figure out yep. whatever the format is, use it, that format to its maximum potential. Correct. Um, we couldn't do that in ours. But like, for example, some of the things that I would strategically do is format really carefully. So that would mean different section headings might be bolded or they might be bolded and italicized or might be underlined and italicized. And I kind of created a format such that once I modeled one of those behaviors, it was consistent. So I think, for example, like my publications, I think I had italicized and underlined every time I reference them. Okay, now now the reader knows, okay, that's Steve's approach. So anytime I see bold, uh, italicized, underlined, he's going to reference a journal paper, a conference paper. And the other nice thing about that is from a space, just economics perspective, the first time I wrote it, I said, see journal paper number blah, blah, blah from CV. Next time I wrote it in the same font, I say journal paper number. Next time I write it, it's J number, right? The, the point being, yeah, you, yeah. you don't need all those letters every time. And when we're getting these hard requirements on space, every word counts. So yeah, it's, it's not a bad idea to kind of get to that level of focus on, on using your format to your advantage. Yeah, I mean, that's something that you worry about kind of when you're closer to the end of that narrative, right? When you at so. least documented everything that you that you think you could possibly say, and then you're getting to the point where you're you're trying to satisfy whatever space limitations or word limitations your, yeah. your university might have. I, and I think this is appropriate to talk about in the research side, because at least for both of us at sort of uh, research-focused institutions, that was the bulk of my, my statement. That's where I put my most time was into, into research. When I think about some of the other sections, maybe we can talk teaching and then mm-hmm. service. Sure. 
for me, that was a little more linear, right? In teaching, I tried to give sort of overarching takeaway. Here's generally how maybe my numbers have improved or, or something like that, maybe some awards if that applies. Um, and then I gave a couple examples of specific innovations that I made for teaching. So that might be um, a module I implemented in class. It might be some kind of um, mentorship where I would bring PhD students into the class to introduce their research with my undergrads or something like that that's concrete. And, and the other thing that I tried to do for this was tie my innovations in teaching some way to the specific work that I do. Right? Like if, I, if I just said, I'm going to work on active learning or something, that's of course good, but anyone can do that. But if instead I talk active learning within this specific topic matter or using these tools or doing something that's tied back to the, the whatever the overarching focus is, I, th I think that's a strategy that was helpful to, again, kind of just, just beat the drum of this is who I am. Here's what I do. Here's the kind of takeaway of what, what the, 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 this professor is, is working on. Any other things you did in teaching or would recommend doing? Yeah, so um, mine was largely the same. Um, I did have, I, I structured it more as like a, a teaching philosophy. And then I wove in those specific examples that you mm. that you sort of were mentioning, right? So as I went through, I had kind of three main kind of bullet points associated with what what my approach to teaching is, what it, what it entails. And so I had a little sentence or, or two that described what I meant by that, that bullet point. And then I provided some supporting evidence from classes. And this is another place where I, I did use a couple of footnotes um, in order to tell a more complete story in the footnotes if anyone was interested in, in that specific example, learning a little bit more about it. Um, and then I went into sort of the evidence of, um, uh, you know, the quality of my teaching. Mm -hmm. So it was talking about some, explaining some of the uh, evaluations, but again, putting them in the context of our department and our college. So if you're going to talk about, you know, whatever your average instructor score was for the entire time you were there, how does that compare to other people in your department? How does it compare to other people in, in your college? Are you above the mean? I mean, I hope so. You're above the college mean and you're above the department mean. Um, you know, how, how did you fare relative to, you know, other faculty? Like if I'm describing a faculty award that I received, you know, how many other faculty were available for that award? Like, was it one in five or was it one in 20? Yeah. Right. And how many times is that award given? And, and so there, there's a lot of what I think are opportunities to provide some context for your accomplishments, because I think they're obvious to you. But again, an external reviewer may not know. They may come from a department of four people. So getting a teaching award is super common because you know they just rotate them around to, to four different people. But you know it can maybe be a lot more competitive when you have 20, 22, 25 other faculty in your department and you're consistently getting awards. Um, I think that makes that maybe a little bit more meaningful than it would be if you just said, oh, I got X number of teaching awards. Yeah. Right. Then, yeah, you're right. That's probably part of the prioritization, though, that they're, that the, the listeners or the writers of this will have to do. Of, of I can't, I can't, I don't have space for every um, detail of every accomplishment. So it is figuring out where is it worth the time to say, okay, sure. awards is a generic thing that anyone will probably have something that could constitute an award. But do you have a really big one? And it's worth an extra sentence, you know, or whatever to clarify that. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Again, those were from footnotes. And then, yeah, right. So then, I, you know, again, I, again, not, I don't want to say cheated, but I, I used the format that you was used, Of course you should. That, that's why they set up the, the system. Yeah. It, it felt weird to me at first because when people said, oh, just use footnotes, I'm thinking, what? That is just, that feels like circumventing the, the system, but whatever. I, it's, it, it looks great. It reads great um, right now. But then, so then I went into um, talking about students and advising and sort of my approach to, uh, advising my graduate students and um, it's, sort of this is still under the that. this oh, is still under the teaching, teaching. Yeah, yeah yeah okay still under the teaching yep, yep. Um, so then I talked about advising you know, my approach there um, and then I thought it was important to talk about where my students ended up hmm. 
So I, idea. you know, mentioned, you know, hey, I graduated two PhD students. One's now an assistant professor on their own. Uh, the other is a you know project manager with a um, you know, large design build construction company. So I, I felt like by contextualizing where my students ended up, it spoke somewhat to the quality of advising that I and the preparation that I gave them. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, especially for kind of, listeners, yeah. if you have that kind of, um, I don't say luxury, because it clearly was your effort that went into it too, but but also a lot of it's on, on them, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have sort of a good situation where a lot of your students are in, in those spots, I think that's great. I think I did also include that. I can't remember if I put it into the teaching or if I put that in wherever I name drop the different students' mm-hmm. projects. Um, either way, I, I think the takeaway is put it where it's logical, but that makes sense as a teaching portion. Another thing I added, I don't know if you do, do you do any like pedagogical or, or educational research? So how students learn about your research or your teaching topics or different teaching strategies? Um, I do. And so for me, I reference some of those papers in my statement under the mm-hmm. teaching section. I realized they're kind of could have fallen under research, but kind of like we talked about earlier, I was trying to build a narrative of what's the most linear way to do this. I chose industry and more uh, academic and or I think it was sort of yeah f- federal and uh, sort of uh, state or applied kind of research, and so to me that made more sense in the teaching column. But I don't know the rules if that if everyone can put research output in the teaching side. Yeah, I don't. Um, so I don't. That's not a, a you don't do part that. of my my research. That's not where I I tend to focus. Um, but I you know there are other faculty here that have definitely ventured into the um, educational research side. So I would have to ask them where they put it, but. I would suspect they here they probably put it in research, but I like it maybe better in the teaching side, um, even though it sort of does double duty. And that's and that's always, I mean, I don't know, I, you can't really go wrong either way, right? I mean, I think that the, the the transition of research and the blend to teaching is good regardless of where it is. Yeah. I think the only way you could go wrong is if there was the limitation concern and you you burned up all of your space and research sure. trying to get every paper reference, but now they don't understand the the significance and now sure. we've got spare spare parts over in teaching or whatever. So it, it definitely is still a prioritization um, exercise. Maybe let's shift to kind of the last one. Not not least important, but at a major research institution, it might not be as heavily scrutinized. Um, some of the others is service, right? It's something that's important that we definitely want to have on there. Um, I suspect probably almost every institution would have this. I don't know that everyone would have as elaborate of a research section, depending on how research active you're supposed to be. Service, almost certainly you should have that section. So what did you put in the service section? What was some of your strategy for um, presenting that content? Uh, so, so service, I, I still tried to make it a narrative. Yeah. So, because to me, I mean, every section seemed to be about uh, sort of progression and and showing sort of upward uh, mobility, and and so I really started with some of my early just service activities, which is service to the profession. So, you know, talked about um, the number of, of reviews that I did for for high quality journals. Um, you know, conference organization, um, and and so I, I mentioned them again. This is one of those things where you you already mention it later, like in your CV or in, in later sections. But you want to call attention to a couple of things that are important, and, and the reason why I called those out is because I specifically wanted to talk about the applicability of doing things like that for the assistant professor level, right? Like those are appropriate things that an assistant professor should be doing, and then I talked about you know, why? And, and I think um, my, the main point that I emphasized was that it, it helped me to develop a reputation in the community. So every time that I write a very detailed, very thorough review, I know that people in our community, editors of the journals that I'm submitting to, are reading that. And having now being an assistant editor myself for you know, a couple of journals, I appreciate a good review. Like I know what a good review looks like. Okay, when it's four lines and doesn't tell me anything, <laughs> that's not a good review. Okay, right. and so I remember that. I see your name, and I'm like, that is a very poor review. Right. <laughs> and I remember the name, so let that be a little warning. But 
like I always wanted to write good reviews because I wanted to build a reputation for myself of, you know, doing high quality research and really giving back to the community, like helping to actually move, make research better. Mm-hmm. And I, and I've, and, and this is going to sound weird, but like, I've gone back and read papers that I have reviewed and they are better for it. <laughs> like that's going to sound <laughs> conceited, but I've heard those faculty talk about their research and mention a lot of the comments that I said in the comments and in, in my review feedback to them. And it overall has improved the quality of, of what they put out. And that makes you know me feel like I'm actually making a difference in, in the research community. So that was kind of a long answer, but I wanted to emphasize that that was one of the things I wanted to convey through my, my service statement about you know what me giving back to the community i then um, did also talk about again a story of development so i talked about my involvement with a a particular um, organization and how it started as me just going to conferences and then me being maybe a track chair for the conference and then eventually me being a technical co-chair for one of their conferences and then me being on the editorial board of the journal and so it sort of shows this valuable kind of contribution to um, that community. Um, and so I tried to keep it very specific. I don't know, because I, I feel like service is so easy to talk about generally and say, oh, I served on committees. and I, But I, I think the specifics of it kind of make it a little bit more personal. Like, what did I get out of the service? And what did I think other people in the community got out of the service as well? Yeah. It's a good idea. I didn't do that. Um, I, I was just looking at what I had, had written. I separated kind of mine into different uh, levels of service. So in my kind of unit or department or school or whatever verbiage we all use, uh, what do I do? At a university level, what do I do? More broadly in sort of the community, what do I do? Um, but I didn't go into that kind of level of detail. And I think that probably would have been wise. Maybe I didn't have the space. So I, I don't I mean, that's always the right. challenge of what's worth the space. Hey. But the idea of, in terms of impact among the people that do similar work to what you do, at least similar enough to justify you being a reviewer, which has to be somewhat related then, that does seem like a, an endorsement of kind of the, the insights you're providing. Um, yeah, I probably should add something about kind of reviewing either accolades or reviewing um, uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like awards you've gotten. You know how like some journals will do like a best yeah, yeah. best reviewer award. Yeah, like yeah. if you've gotten one of those, maybe maybe consider adding that. Yeah. I mean, I just I mean, regardless of I mean, I don't can't say it worked yet, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm still in the process of submitting it, so I don't know whether how it will be received that particular section. But I mean, one of the things that I always found rewarding was you know seeing review comments that I made, yeah, you know, be mentioned by the author, like almost word like they they would they would use those same kind of comments in the way that they talked about their research at, at conferences or whatever and you could tell that it was really sort of changing the way that they thought about um, what they were doing yeah well and i guess what i like about that that narrative is it more directly ties what you did in service to your impact um i think the way i wrote mine was a little bit more of tick the boxes and show I am active at this level. I'm active at this level and I'm active at like, I'm, I'm doing it and here's, here's the things that I'm doing, but it, it probably wasn't as linear as here's why this matters or here's how it ties to my underlying aims or whatever. Um, okay. One other item I would be interested to hear your thoughts are on, on the narrative that we didn't talk about. Did you put in any kind of conclusion or wrap up or closing paragraph statement, anything in yours, or was there not a space for it in your format? Uh, so I, I did. So this is like the research. Well, so I did typically for the research narrative, that's where I'm thinking of the closing okay. the other ones didn't really have, I, I sort of ended it with a sentence, but it okay. wasn't like a dedicated paragraph. It was sort of, I ended it with like a forward looking okay. sentence. Um, the research narrative was definitely, I was more intentional about that in creating a last paragraph yeah. to make sure that I was saying something along the lines of, um, there's still a lot to learn sure. here and, uh, you know, here's where I, I see this going, you know, over the next, you know, in the next few years. Right. So I sort of tried to make it more future oriented, like you mentioned at the beginning, um, in that last paragraph. 
yeah. the research section. I, I did too. And I, I ended up doing this right. But in the spirit of celebrating failure, our podcast, my first draft completely messed it up. And I'm really glad I went to others for their feedback and their insights on what to put in here. Um, I had initially a closing paragraph that had kind of the tone of, I'm really proud of all that I've done. And it was all hindsight. It's all, let's look at what I did in the last five or six mm-hmm. years. And what I shifted to, and I think it was much better, was how this will enable my future success. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I think was wise to include in there, um, especially if it's true, which I felt wholeheartedly that it was in my case, is give thanks to the the general sort of structures. You probably don't have room for, for all, every individual, but to the, the kind of folks that you worked with, your collaborators and faculty mentors or whoever you went to, appreciate all the, the mentorship and guidance they've given me. I look forward to being in a position where I could potentially pass that on to the next generation of junior faculty. Something that gets to, I didn't just get here alone. Yes, you were hugely instrumental, but you had outstanding grad students and great mentors and a good university with a good structure and all those things. Um, I think that was a much stronger way to close it than what I had initially done. Um, And I'm kind of glad I made the switch to that. I like that. That last point specifically I like, and, and I think I have... Something similar to that in the in my service narrative, um, where you know you mentioned a loose structure of um, department service, university service, and, and professional service, and I, I did touch on all of those in, in the, the service narrative. And in the department one, I definitely had a, a statement that was similar to what you mentioned there of you know appreciation for the folks that helped me get to where I am and uh, expressing a desire to help our junior faculty. And we've hired a lot of junior faculty over the past you know, several mm-hmm. years. And I mean, that is genuinely something that I am looking forward to doing, yeah. is, I mean, that was, that is was helping, actually, helping them succeed. Right? I mean, that was kind of the motivation behind this. I yeah. mean, this, this isn't, we don't get right. any credit for this. is just fun. <laughs> I put this on there. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. thanks to everyone actually listening for this. That's I great. put this on here. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I do this for for this is part of the community service kind of thing that yeah. we do, right? Well, that's that's great. So that, so this is kind of the narrative, which I know we've spent most of our time discussing this, and I think that makes sense. That's where I think you, the listener, should also spend most of your time. Get that narrative great. But you will also probably have other content that you submit, right? It may be a CV as well. Check with your university on the formatting guidelines and those approaches there. I think at least for, for both of us, that was more or less just fill it in, right? We already have a CV, put it in the format they want, get it in. The other thing though, and this relates a little bit to the footnote strategy that you mentioned, Brian, we didn't have a footnote strategy, but we had a section that we could submit what we called supplemental documents. And this was kind of the, what other stuff should the committee know about if they want further backup on some of your accolades? And so if you have something like it, if you can put in a footnote to a hyperlink, if you can put in um, supplemental docs, whatever, if you've got this, what do you add in there to add context to your work? Um, I don't know what you did, but I'll, I'll talk through my strategy. I was very purposeful about actually putting time into that section and taking the items that I wanted to have in there and curating them for the reader of the package, which meant here's an image of students that are at a a competition in this location that my mentorship helped them to maybe get to or whatever, and kind of still be brief about it. Why does this matter? How does the show impact? Um, I get the impression that for some individuals, that supplemental piece is a little bit of an afterthought. It's it's just the the, the bonus bin of of other items that I, I have in there. I think in talking to others, it would be wise to put a little bit of time into curating that information. And if something won't be clear to a reviewer, it's not, it may not help your case. So either take the time to make it clear why this thing matters, or perhaps consider not putting it in. Because um, I kind of get the sense that if they look at supplemental documents, they are going, they're only going to go there if they want to gain some information. The sheer mass of, oh, you've got 100 pages of extra stuff, I get the impression is not in and of itself a selling point. Yeah, so we, I don't believe, had a, a section like that um, in in our sort of package, in our default format. Uh, I know that other uh, colleges do have specific sections in, in their packages that maybe are more accommodative to that. Like, um, there, there's some that have, like, you know, educational portfolio or where, which may have some of those examples of, 
um, specific techniques that you're using and images of, of classes working together and, and things like that. Um, but we just, uh, it's sort of a not applicable one for our, our department. And so we're really not encouraged to put anything in that section, or at least I've not been encouraged to, to add anything there just to cover it in the, in the narrative. And I guess with any footnotes that might be relevant. So then did you have to include like specific publications? Cause we, we would have to include sample publica- publications, not just on the CV, but actually include oh. the PDF as samples. Did you have to do anything like that? Uh, we did not. Okay. So we provide, um, you know, with the publication, we have like a link, we have the DOI yeah. link to the publication there. That's a clickable hyperlink. Um, and also just, you could type it in manually if you wanted to. Uh, but I don't think we, I've not been told, I hope I don't have to do this, but print out or, or have PDFs of every paper uh, that I've written. Well, sounds good. I feel like this is a good overview of what goes into it. So we're thinking about the narrative, the CV, the supplemental documents, or whatever version of that you've got. This essentially makes up the package. And we've talked in the past about some of the review process, but let's go through, I think, one other item that is sort of a part of the package, but sort of just as it relates to the process. The university will have their own process. So they're going to have, we're going to review you at a school level, a department level, a, a college level, a whatever. Le- they'll have that process and that will go on um, on its own. But the other process that you may have some control over relates to external reviewers. So one of the things that we would have at our university that I think a lot do is external letter writers. So these are individuals that we would go to from other universities probably that are somewhat familiar with my field, my work, something about what I do, but probably not individuals that I have worked with firsthand, that I have uh, done funded research with or published with or uh, mentored or certainly not like an advisor or something like that. And so part of the challenge or part of the consideration is thinking, who do you want to suggest becomes letter writers? Because at least at ASU, I would suggest some but then my department head or school director in our case would would suggest some. So it's kind of coming up with that list of who out there do I think would review my package and would have enough clout, for lack of a better word, that, that he or she is well qualified to say, Steve is worthy of this or he's not, and here's why. And also then who do I think would understand sort of the gravity of some of the things I've done? Here's why I think this matters kind of thing. So first of all, before we dive into strategies, what was your process at Florida? Like, do you submit names? Does your school director? Do you both? How does it work? Yep. So very, very similar to um, what you described. So I would put together a name uh, or a list of um, list of names. I think I had, I don't know, six names maybe. Yeah. Um, five or six names, something like that. Uh, and the director of our school, um, so our, our department head, would have. Uh, a list of names that uh, he put together as well. And then he would choose, I think, six total names. I think something like half of them came from me. It's like three of them came from me. Uh, three of them came from, from his list. Um, and then he would go and solicit, uh, first of all, interest, I guess. You have to approach yeah. you know, these six people and say, do you have time to review this person's tenure packet um, and get confirmation that they can do it and are interested in doing it? And then they would get mailed your packet. And as far as I understand, they have, you know, a month or two, two months, three months to review that packet and submit a letter back to the department, which then becomes a part of your, your tenure package when it starts moving through the university. Yeah. Which, by the way, can also be a challenge. You, you gave the example of reviewing papers and you want to be very thorough in your process there. And that makes journal editors want you to be a reviewer. Similarly here, they want someone who will be thorough in their letter writing because if someone kind of phones it in on the letter writing, that does not look good for you as the candidate. And so it was interesting going through the process. I came up with a bunch of names of people that I either knew but had not worked with or at least had maybe met or had some vague connection with I cited a bunch of their papers whatever and then even that big list of however many names gets whittled down because I kind of had discussions with my school director of saying you know you've got more experience at this than I do what are your thoughts and there's little details that the school director was able to suggest to me that I wouldn't have thought either from prior letter writing experience that they just know this person's better suited to writing letters for this type of candidate than you. And so that that's a good reason not to invite him or other more 
um, I don't know, logistical kind of items, things like, well, you want most of your letter writers to be in the States, right? So I pick someone who's in Canada. Yeah, he or she's a huge name. They're great. But they're Canada. And even though we would look at them maybe in our field as being absolute equals, if it's reviewed by someone elsewhere up the sort of university food chain, they may say, well, I don't know anything about this university. And so the sort of uh, feedback that I got from the director, I really appreciated because I think he had um, a level of experience that I didn't with with strategically selecting letter writers. So maybe the takeaway here is for others listening, I would try to, similar to research, cast a wide net in terms of your network and people that are aware of you and what you do and people that you would potentially feel comfortable asking them to write you a letter, but then still go to your department head, school director, uh, whatever the, the, the job description may be and get their insights on what do they think. And, and may, they may give you some tidbits of who to target that you hadn't thought of, or maybe who to avoid, um, not even because they're bad, but they might just not be ideal for your specific case. Yeah, and, and so maybe to add on to that, because um, I learned a couple things about this process as well, because yeah. I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm looking at our program, and then I'm looking at similar programs to ours and identifying faculty there. and. I was told, <laughs> informed, uh, corrected, uh, my 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 understanding here, uh, that tenure is granted at the university level, not the department level. Yeah. So what that meant was that I needed to find um, potential letter writers at comparable universities. Yes. Not necessarily comparable departments or schools to my own. Okay. And so that was kind of an additional wrinkle that I didn't think of. So some of the um, folks that I identified, I cite them all the time. They're awesome. I've met them at conferences, um, but they weren't at a large state school. Right. And so I was told, you know, that may not be, you know, a good choice. It's okay to have maybe one of those on here or two of them on here, but the whole entire list can't be those. They have there have to be the majority need to come from, you know, comparable universities to, in my case, the University of Florida. Yeah. So, or above. I need to be looking at or above. You could right? always go above, but yeah, your above. your point is you don't want to have sort of I, below. I can't. Them. Yeah, like I can't go to like a, a, a R two university as a even though you know the person may be awesome, they may be great, yeah. um, but it, it's not comparable because. The, the tenure is granted at the at the university level. Uh, the other thing that I was told is that even though, you know, and you sort of alluded to this, there are some individuals who are maybe better for different candidates and different promotion levels. So I could think of some people that I've again met at met at some conferences. Um, you know, they know me, um, but they're probably someone who is more likely to write a letter for someone going from associate to full professor, right? And maybe that's a better use of sort of that, that reference or that contact mm-hmm. um, because that's, they're at kind of that level in their career and that's you know, where, where they're best at making that judgment. Yeah, I mean, this, this is all great. But the one other thing I will uh, suggest related to this topic did not apply to me, but I know it does for a couple of lucky individuals. If you're in a spot where you have some kind of tie with um, a Nobel Award winner, with a National Academy of Engineer uh, faculty, with someone at that level of the top sort of echelon in your field, um, again, if, if there's an issue of that was your advisor, well, sorry, you can't list them. Or if there's some direct tie... But I know in a lot of faculty's case, we do something as grad students that's vaguely related to a field. And then a lot of times we diverge a little because we don't want to be competing with our advisor. We'll be more competitive in a different domain. If that's you and you have someone like that, even if they're not directly in your field, at least at our university, they said absolutely suggest them as a letter writer. That's an acceptable mm-hmm. thing if they still understand enough about what you do um, to, to define its impact effectively. That can be a thing to consider as well. Um, I, I was lucky to have a lot of, you know, big names in our domain that I had known of. But it, in terms of that next echelon, I didn't really have a lot of first firsthand contact. So I didn't list any. But that is something to think about if someone else is going through it. That, that's a good point. And then your, your interna- the international faculty that you mentioned, 
again, may not be a great one for the assistant to associate level, but is definitely someone that you yep. would want for the associate to full professor level because yep. you're supposed to be showing an international impact now. And so you need international domain experts to recognize you. Yeah. It's almost like we've heard, uh, like at the very beginning of this, we said you want to coalesce your CV down to a statement of this man or woman is the person that does blah, like three, four, five words, whatever. And then what I've sometimes heard for the full prof- associate to full is when you type in those three, four or five words, you should yeah. be the name that pops up, right? Like it's, yeah. it's almost like that should be the way you're, you're known. And so, yeah, I think that's a great point. Maybe that's a better one to think of for later. I feel like this is good. Um, any other thoughts in terms, we're just talking about the package. I realize there's other items we could talk about related to the process, but in terms of just building up your case to submit, any other things that we should be mentioning to our listeners? I mean, there's, there's a whole uh, discussion on, on awards that I pr- probably want to talk about later at, at different different times and lessons I learned about, you know, awards and competing for, for awards. I, I don't mean... Uh, grants and proposals. I'm talking more about like research awards, service awards, teaching awards, that kind of thing. Um, Because something we didn't really mention at the beginning, maybe we should have led with this, was that I think the whole purpose of the the tenure package is to demonstrate that you have achieved excellence in research and teaching and and maybe service. But it's that what does excellence mean Right. And what evidence do you have to make your case that you have achieved that level of excellence? Right. And so that's kind of what we're doing when we're talking about these narratives, when we're talking about building the CV, when we're talking about building the story, we're describing or trying to prove the case, right, that we have achieved excellence. And it should be obvious to someone who's reading it. Right. It, it should not be ambiguous. They should not have to be guessing to say, is this excellence? I don't know. But there's things that you can't argue with, like as you're listing things. And, and you know, research awards, teaching awards, I think, are sort of obvious um, sources of, of evidence related to excellence. That's a great point. I will then give one other suggestion that's closely related to it. Um, if you find yourself to be a person that procrastinates, which if I'm being honest, sometimes is me, don't let this be a thing you procrastinate on. Because what you just said, anyone needs to be able to see this and see excellence or success or a trajectory that indicates this person's going to continue to, to rise as a star, whatever version of that we want to look at. You, your, in, your intuition may not automatically align with everyone else's. And so one of the things that I think was wise as a process that helped me to realize all of my mistakes in draft one was to go to a bunch of individuals. I would strategically target someone at various levels. Go to someone who was just tenured. Go to someone probably at your university if you can. If there's a good collegial relationship, go to someone who was just tenured, get their feedback. Go to maybe someone who is a senior level faculty member at your institution. Um, maybe that's a faculty mentor. Maybe that's someone who at some point in his or her career sat on the uh, P&T review panel, something like that where they have some insights of institutional expectations. See what they think. Um, I would also look to go to someone external. And one that I, I would highly suggest if there's a good relationship, go to your advisor. You already know they're not going to be one of your mm-hmm. letter. They're a perfect person to get you kind of blunt yeah. feedback, assuming that's the kind of relationship you have. Right? They want to see you succeed. So they're not going to hold punches to be artificially polite or whatever. And I think that's a good place to get feedback. Um, in, in my case, I think I went to my former advisor last. So so his feedback was comparatively less than others. But my point is, I would take the time, plan early enough, don't procrastinate and get these reviews in because you're going to find all kinds of issues that you didn't know you didn't know until you get their feedback. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And one thing I noticed, and I'll just end on this, um, I, I did give a draft of my packet to um, some some of the like, associate dean level sort of at, at our at our college just to read over because they've seen a lot of these right that come through um and they know me uh, and they know what i've been doing uh, pretty well and what they were really good at was catching things that i was under reporting mm-hmm. so i was underselling myself like they had known how i was interacting with 
my students because they had attended some of the meetings when I was talking to my students because we co-chaired um, a student. And they felt like I was underselling and underrepresenting um, my discussion of my advising procedure. And that was just one example. There were a couple others where they felt like I was underselling it. Um, and so they, that, that, that feedback was great. Like I would not have even thought because I'm usually just writing. I'm, again, I'm used to scientific writing. I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to embellish it. I want to tell you what the results are. Right. And uh, that was a great catch of, you know, really describe the process because it's not obvious to everyone yeah. unless you tell them. Great advice. Well, this was fun. I feel like we got a lot of good uh, topics covered. After you get your package ready, get it submitted. Go, uh, I don't know, buy a bottle, a nice champagne or wine or whatever your whatever your treat is for yourself to go uh, to have to just celebrate that small success of getting it in. So uh, you'll have to keep us posted, Brian, when you when you Soon. get yours formally submitted and, and hear the good news. I'm sure. So. Thank you all for joining us as always. Hopefully you got something out of this. Um, I always enjoy trying to talk about some of these topics because many of them are things I wish I would have known. So we will catch you on the next episode of Prophecy.